if you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation. You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. Blackberry was executing really well. Trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing. The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. Welcome to the Innovation Engine at Home Edition, where you get to meet my cat and our children. And our guest today, Dominic O'Connor, who's CTO of EmployStream, formerly of Interfolio, where he led from startup to M&A and growth. Uh, and he's going to talk about some of his experiences leading through that. Great. Let's get into it. So hello and welcome to the Innovation Engine podcast. Our guest today is Dominic O'Connor. Dominic, do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Hi there. Uh, yes, I'm Dominic O'Connor. Uh, I recently joined EmployStream as Chief Technology Officer. EmployStream is a SaaS platform that automates the hiring and onboarding workflows for high-volume employers. And uh, I'm also lucky enough to say that I've worked with Scott in not one but two different past companies. <laughs> yeah, so if we seem a little bit familiar in this podcast, you'll know why. So welcome, Dominic. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Happy to be here. Welcome, Dominic. Thanks for joining us today in this COVID-19 edition of recording um, the Innovation Engine podcast. Uh, it is entirely possible for those of you listening that one of the two children that I have or one of the two children that Scott has may interrupt us at some point during this conversation. So if you hear that, don't worry. But let's get it kicked off with this question. Our theme is really around steering a team or organization through growth. So what's a big growth story that you've been a part of leading through? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's great to talk to you guys today. The growth event that sticks out to me the most in my career uh, was kind of mid-career. Uh, when we, I was a, a technology leader at Interfolio, an ed tech company out of D.C., and we acquired a smaller technology company, also ed tech, uh, in Kentucky. And at the time, Interfolio was still pretty small, uh, and we took on all of their uh, team. So that meant merging our engineering teams and our client success teams. And we took on their technology and their clients and merged all the all the pieces of technology together. So it was really a kind of transformational time for, for that company and for us and for everybody at Interfolio who'd never really gone through a process like that before. What was the reason for the intersection of two teams? Why were they brought together? We, Interfolio at the time, had a uh, two-point solutions, essentially, in EdTech. And Data180's product fit really nicely in between our two-point solutions to create kind of a more cohesive platform. Um, and so the, the client base was really uh, compelling for us. The product integration was really compelling for us. And they had a great team. And so we wanted to bring everybody together and continue you know, as seamlessly as possible. I, I imagine you had a plan going into that, into that integration. But I think for the, for the purposes of, of our theme, I'm kind of interested in what surprised you. What, what caught you off guard um, as you tried to put these, these product portfolios and teams and cultures together? Can you talk about yeah. that? The joke is always all, all plans go out the window once the first punch is thrown. Or the first bullet is fired. Um, <laughs> we were really intentional about, you know, how we are going to blend the teams and how we are going to integrate the the technology. And 
you know, all in all, I think we did a, a, a decent job of it, but we really underestimated the complexity that it required. When you talk about any team, and especially an engineering team, there's a lot of complexity there. And when you talk about a technology platform, there's obviously a lot of tech, uh, complexity there. And when you take two complex objects, you're not, you know, it's not one plus one, it's, uh, it's a multiplication problem where the complexity of one is actually a magnifier of the complexity of the other. And now you have this much more complex thing that we weren't, uh, we had not clocked how, how hard that would be. So, so given that, what what advice would you give to the 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 former you, the you that was on the side of planning integration and, and thinking it through? What would what would you now tell you then that would have helped you better steer or or better anticipate some of those challenges or or what have you? What would you what would you tell that version of yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, as as good of a job that I think we did in planning, we planned the wrong thing. You can plan what the technology is going to look like when they get together or what the teams are going to look like when they get together. But again, you know, you, a lot of that goes out the window. You can't keep doing the same thing you did, but with a bigger team or do it better because you're, you're playing on a different uh, a playing field now. And so what you should be planning is what the process is going to look like and how you're going to react to the things that you don't see coming whether that's what your leadership team looks like, what your decision tree looks like, or you know, really what the communication and process looks like. So just let's click on that just a little bit deeper um, in terms of the advice that you would give to your former self. I'm thinking about folks in our audience who might be entering in one of these complex integrations. What, what, what kinds of things specifically do you think that they should, should consider as they start to plan that out based on, based on your experience at Interfolio? Right. You know, I think it comes down to focusing. Obviously, you're going to need to do some kind of planning for what the tactical steps you need to take are. But you have to also incorporate the decisions you're going to make that you don't, for the problems that you don't know are coming. Mm. Um, so spend some time thinking what your process looks like. What does your leadership team need to be to make those decisions? And what does the process look like to? bring other people in to make the decisions because the people that you're bringing on board, they're going to have better context for their technical details, their client details. And then taking it one more step with them is, you know, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? If you're making these really big strategic decisions about how you're going to deploy this thing that they built for in a number of years, uh, how are you going to communicate any, any changes that you've decided? I was just going to say, what about the pace of change? I've been involved in integrations before, and usually there's the five-day, 10-day, 30-day, 60-day, 90-day plan of what integration looks like. So when you're kind of thinking about um, how much change can they absorb, how do you roll out that change, what did you know to start, what did you make a decision for when you were in in progress? Yeah, uh, in our experience... The expected pace uh, was much faster than we were able to to hit, which I think that's probably uh, the case pretty often. Uh, the business has uh, pretty aggressive goals. The money wants a return. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and there's mm-hmm. a reason they call it inorganic growth. It's because you're just shoving this one organization into another and uh, you know they don't necessarily blend as, as seamlessly as you'd expect them to. So ultimately, it's a cycle of 
you make your plan, you start to uh, work it, and then you iterate and say, okay, well, we learned these new things in this past time period. So how does that change what the next time period looks like? And who do we need to bring in to, to amend what our original plan was? What, what do you mean by that? We need to bring in is that is that a is that like from a leadership perspective? Is it from a, a role perspective? What do you mean by that? Kind of going back to to referencing the people who are experts in in that new thing that you just uh, that you just absorbed, whether it's the product or the team or or the leadership from that last company. You know, they it's easy as the acquiring company to assume that you have full knowledge or or a fully baked strategy for how it's all going to play out, but they have years of institutional knowledge that you don't. And so tapping them and saying, this is what we have uh, in our roadmap, or this is what our vision looks like for the combined organization. Um, what's not going to work based on what you know about your business or your client base? One of the things that strikes me as I, as I hear you talk about this is, is how the challenge of projecting confidence through, you know, we've planned, we thought about this, we have a plan and so forth, but also injecting, and it's full of things that is the plan itself, it also has a healthy uh, amount of uncertainty built into it. And that's that's got to be an interesting position to be as a leader managing up and down. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think an important part of leadership is, is that walking the line between confidence and humility, because no leader has all the answers. You're not on the front lines solving the problems that that your teams are solving. You're, you know, two or three or four levels above and and you think you have an idea of what's going on and you're going to make plans and decisions based on that idea. But you always have to go back and say, this is what I'm thinking. Tell me why that's not going to work and how do we mitigate those risks? I think that's something that we see a lot of organizations struggle with as we talk to them is getting decision-making at the right level. In a lot of organizations, you find that some decisions, a lot of really important decisions have to get made at the leadership team level or at the VP level. Um, so how, how do you manage that and get the decisions happening um, where you want them to? Yeah, um, that's something that I uh, struggled with early in my career. And it's always going to be a challenge where you have to make sure that you know, depending on where you are in the organization, if you're a senior leader, you're leaning on your your middle management layer heavily. And if you're a team leader, then you're you're leaning on your direct reports heavily, um, and make sure that you create this culture of sharing information in both directions. So the people on the front lines know what the business is trying to do, what you're trying to do with your organization, and why, so that when they run into those issues that might conflict with your plan, they know to raise that flag to to their their manager or you know all the way up the chain if it's if it's that important so that you can amend the plan or you can give uh, that team resources to work around it or whatever the case may be. Yeah, it's 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 really it's interesting as I as I listen to you and I think about my own experiences with integrations and how out of body they can feel. They're surreal. They're not. They're not the job we did up until then, and suddenly the you know, and it feels so different. And yet, there's still obviously parallels with the other parts of of, of being a, a leader, middle manager, right? Um, 
So what, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like for your own benefit, like what, what are some of the things that, that for yourself, that you feel like you were better at now in terms of your, your evolution as a leader from, from this experience? I would say the biggest thing for me, and you know, I, I touched on earlier is, is communication and, and then blended with humility. So early on as a leader, I really thought that the, the head of an organization or, or, you know, a senior manager was supposed to be the one that had the answers and they would give those answers to the people that reported to them. And those people would do the work based on that, that information, you know, in any number of problems you run into day to day, but especially something like M&A, you're going to run into questions that of course you don't have the answers to because you've never seen that problem before. And to expect that you would have that problem uh, is kind of laughable. And so rather than, you know, banging your head against the problem that has probably been solved 10 times, it really goes back to, you know, getting information from the people around you that you're working with and also leaning heavily on, on your mentors. Um, and that's ultimately what opened my eyes was I saw that the people that I respected really, that I really respected, they were going out and leaning on their mentors. So why should I have to figure it out myself? Mm. I think that's so, so valuable, right? As you move up and you you get into these lonelier and lonelier positions of leadership, and and uh, exactly. and yeah, and you, you sort of bring your own expectation that you're going to just know the right answer, and of course, it's not that uh, not that straightforward. I think that's a really that's a really great insight. Um, so, so Dominic, what about the the cultural implications of business evolution? I, you know, I, I think about you know the the team that got you to the point where you were in a position to acquire a company, right? That you would have that kind of strength. The, the organization of a certain level of maturity, the culture is is at a certain level. Um, your team members are of a certain level. And then now you have to digest, you know, senior professionals from another organization and bring them in and just kind of thinking through the way that, that that's going to change your culture. And a piece of advice I got early in my career is, you know, even when I'm making a singular hire, everybody changes culture. What's your thesis on how this individual is going to change this culture? Obviously, mm-hmm. acquisition is an even bigger, uh, you know, scope from, from that perspective. So, so how do you think about having gone through this? How do you think about hiring for change or managing existing team members in terms of what this change means for them personally, for the organization they're a part of and for the culture that you're trying to build at that point? What, what, what are, what are some insights or thoughts that you have about around, around that? Cause that's a very real set of decisions that managers have to go through, um, if they face this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think on one hand, there's an element of just being honest and saying to the team, this is going to be disruptive and we're going to make all these purposeful decisions to try to minimize that disruption. But there's no way that this next week is going to look like this week because it, there's going to be a lot more bodies and a lot more technical uh, details to be to be managed. On a kind of more forward-looking perspective, I really like thinking through what that end vision looks like. Why, why did we do this acquisition or you know, why did we hire this person and create a really detailed picture for people to look at in their minds and understand uh, the reasons, you know, how did we get here and where are we going next? And, you know, why am I being asked to do these five things? Uh, how does it change things in a, in a real way? I remember years ago when Interfolio was really small, we did this exercise called the painted picture where you imagined yourself in five years 
And, you know, what does the business look like? What do you look like? What is your role? What are you doing day to day? And you want to be as detailed as possible so you can put yourself in that position and kind of walk back, like, how do we get to that point? And so painting that picture for people gives them a little bit more understanding of what the goals are uh, and how uh, their work helps you reach those goals. It also makes it feel a little bit less like a, a treadmill when you're, you know, you're running towards something as a team and you're not just on that week to week. These are the points I have to burn down or these are UX researchers uh, interviews that I have to conduct. You're, you're pursuing something intentionally. Mm. I was going to say is in terms of hiring, I always remember this, this quote I read in a first round review article about the VP of uh, VP of people for NerdWallet, I think. Flow, flow tin, I think. The quote was, and I'm going to butcher it, but when you're hiring good talent, obviously you have to you know, pick the people that you're going to pursue because they have, the, they have the credentials that you need. But when you're trying to get somebody on board who you know you want, don't tell them the lines in the script. Paint them the vision of the movie that they're going to be in and the part that they're going to play so that they have something kind of inspiring to, to be part of. And they say, oh, man, I don't want to miss out on that. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which, which I, I love because that's a that's it's a more tangible way of talking about like the missionary versus mercenary, right? Like you you, you want to give them a bigger frame to step into um, something something more inspiring, more meaningful than simply this is the this is the task. Um, exactly. Exactly. Well, and likewise, though, you have the challenge of, of folks who who maybe were optimal for the last stage of growth and aren't aren't bought into and, and don't buy into the next round or what, what it is that you're building. And do you have any thoughts on, on how you how do you deal with that? Or, or if you're not sure as a manager whether or not they're bought in, what, what, what do you do then? Yeah, uh, kind of going back to the, the, the painted picture analogy, that can be a real foil for who is on your journey and who's not. And, you know, you paint the picture and if it's well delivered, then pe- people will, you know, run behind you towards that goal. And you'll very quickly see the people who aren't running as fast or, or maybe hopefully not running their uh, opposite direction. Yeah. Um, and it gives you, you know, the opportunity and the responsibility as a leader to have a conversation and say, you know, this is what we're, this is where we're trying to go. What do you think about that? Are you on board? And if they're not on board, then you have a, have a conversation or a decision about whether they're in the right role or whether they're the right person for your team at all. And it's not, it's not easy, you know. It doesn't mean that they're bad. It doesn't devalue any of the work that they did in the past because what they did got you to where you are. But at the same time, you know, you, as you get bigger and as the problems get harder, you need different blend of talent and personalities to achieve the, the harder the harder goals. Yeah. Yeah. It's one, I think it, I think that's some of the, the trickiest waters to navigate in, in, in org change of that magnitude, you know, especially feeling like you contributed to getting the company to where it is. You may not be the right person to lead your area or, or maybe, maybe there's a new role available and you may not be the right person to take that role. And that's, that gets just from a pride perspective, it's really tricky to manage for as the, as the individual or as the manager trying to make those hard calls. Yeah, absolutely. And and for that person, it might be really confusing. They did a great job. And all of a sudden, the great job that they've been doing is not getting the same accolades or the same uh, acknowledgement that it used to. And so 
as a leader, you know, you have to be honest for all the times leading up to that of, you know, this is what we're trying to do. And these are the, this is the, again, the role that you play in that and, you know, help them make the decision of whether they want to play that role or not. Yeah. Well, I was going to pivot to a slightly different place and, and actually interesting, like go to more thinking about the technology itself. How do you take two different products, potentially with two different stacks, who made by teams with different philosophies about how things should be built, just from a technical perspective? How do you start to assess that and figure out what, how you go forward? You know, I, I'm not going to claim that I'm an expert in this. I've, I've done it a couple of times, but I will say the way that we pursued it was, again, looking at that end goal and saying, if the vision is a fully blended stack, and it not always is, but if that's the vision, then what is the path, uh, what is the critical path towards that end state? And so the way that we attacked it was we started with the tech stacks. They were very different, and we didn't actually blend those. They were both in AWS, and we let them run independently. Luckily, we had a pretty strong service-oriented architecture bias at the time. And so that allowed the Interfolio stack to be a little bit more easily integratable. Um, And so we decided that in order to have a blended application, we at at least have to know what a user looks like across all stacks. And so that's where we started in terms of authentication and and, uh, sessioning and authorization. Uh, And then we kind of stepped forward from there. So we put some UI that made it look like a seamless experience, even though they are two very different tech stacks. And then we started integrating the point solutions. So in in the journey that you described, and I I think you hit on this a little bit earlier, but in the journey that you described, and sounds like you found yourself in a number of situations that were outside your area of expertise. Is that is that true? Hundred percent. Yeah. As we grew faster and faster, those those new situations came faster and faster and more frequently. <laughs> <laughs> Which is wonderful for building confidence. So so what are some of the, what are some of the ways that uh, that you keep yourself moving forward in the face of the this accelerating uh, level of challenge? Um, and 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 degrading sense of uh, I've got all the answers. <laughs> Even if you're not acquiring a company or or you know growing in a, a really exponential way, any professional wants to be hitting new challenges and feeling at least a little bit outside their comfort zone, or else you're not growing. So you know we talked earlier about leaning on your mentors, and and I think picking the people who either you know or you don't know, and you can follow them on LinkedIn, but pick the people that you think operate in the way that you'd like to operate or whose Mm. perspectives and philosophy on your work or on the type of work you do uh, meshes with the way you think about it also. And uh, whether it's following them on LinkedIn or finding a mutual connection and asking for an intro, but you know, again, you don't have to be the one to solve it get their perspective. And it doesn't mean that's the right one, but it at least informs your your own perspective on your growth. I think that's one of those uh, those really, really helpful insights um, as people move up in their careers to realize that, you know, this doesn't, it doesn't come from, it's all not all from inside uh, being able to lead teams exactly. that you are referencing as many sources as possible uh, at various degrees of depth to, uh, in order to figure out how to do that. That's uh, That's a really helpful 
helpful insight. And I think there's an interesting thing that happened, and I've seen it in evolutions of teams I've loved, where people get to a point where they say, well, my manager isn't teaching me anything anymore. And like, yes, that's going to happen. <laughs> where what you need to learn does not exist with your manager, the people, the person who is leading you, and you becomes on. They may there may be a lot of things that they have to teach you. I think I'm one of those people who believe that everyone you meet has something to teach you. But there's something about as you hit a certain point, realizing that your development is large. While these folks have different things to teach you, and they can connect you. It's not about your manager being the one who teaches you everything you need to know. There's some good research published in HBR about the connected the connector manager being the kind of person who connects you to other people, not necessarily the one who teaches you how to do things anymore, hmm. which I think is kind of an interesting evolution. I've seen people, especially recently, grapple with that once they hit a certain level. Like They're expecting their manager to be able to teach them, but then they don't. They're like, well, this person doesn't know any more than I do. Right. Congratulations. You want to be happening. If if you know more than the people who are are for you, then you then you need to help them develop, or you need to hire better. Because ultimately, you should be employing people smarter than you. (laughs) Amen. Oh yeah, that's never been a problem for me. (laughs) (laughs) So, Dominic, this is awesome. Thank you uh, for the for those insights. Um, There's there's a couple of uh, of standard questions we like to ask our guests. on the on the innovation engine podcast, and so the the first one is is uh, is is a really useful kind of tell. What's the one thing that you always look for uh, in in a team that tells you if it's healthy or in trouble? What's 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 your sort of uh, thermometer for a team? I think communication is is the best bellwether because it actually exposes a lot of other hints about the team. A really strong team is going to be challenging to each other and also supporting to each other and communicate, you know, almost breezily and, and easily. And a team like that, they'll be able to give some pretty direct feedback to each other because they have that level of trust. You know, the, the opposite of that is an unhealthy team where either they don't have the rapport to give frank feedback and they're not making each other better, or they actually have active conflict. And, you know, it's either short clipped communication or, or lack of communication or just very transactional. And depending on, you know, where that team is on its, its growth, whether, you know, if it's a brand new team, they're not going to have that rapport yet. And it's your job to foster it. If they're an established team and, and they're having issues communicating, then, you know, you might need to re-team or, or see if there's, you know, a critical issue that's at the core of that conflict. Yeah, there's a lot packed in there. Um, not not just not just co- communication, but more you're looking for the symptoms of trust um, and and a, and, a, and a culture of accountability and support. Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Maybe maybe communication glosses over a lot, but uh, I think that's kind of the value in it is that, that there is a lot that will be exposed with with healthy or unhealthy communication. Yeah, it's it's a useful useful thing to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, the the second question is uh, is quite different. Um, what piece of technology can be analog, digital, um, software, hardware, but you can't cheat? You can't use your phone. Everyone says phone that you cannot live without. So I, I will I will also not cheat and say my insulin pump because I literally <laughs> cannot live without that. <laughs> Although that's a that's a very valid answer. Yeah, it's still on the nose. I think it's pretty valid. <laughs> 
I'd say like existentially, the the technology that I can't live without is my stove. I I love cooking. Cooking is kind of what evens me out when I'm not at work. And it's also, you know, what Oprah would call my love language. It's how I express my care for for my friends and family. And cooking for the people around me is is super important to me. So both inside my head and out, it's it's the thing that keeps mm-hmm. me going. Okay, so speed round. What is your coronavirus comfort food? Because this is my new favorite icebreaker question for all these industry roundtables I'm doing. So what? Oh what's the? I've, I have a lot for comfort? you. Uh, I mean, <laughs> kielbasa fried rice from uh, Bon Appetit that was excellent. Uh, a, a bolognese. I made uh, instant pot carnitas. I'm cooking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair enough uh those are those are good i don't have kids and i need something to fill the time <laughs> <laughs> oh that was just cruel <laughs> yeah for, for our listeners at home there is a two-year-old on my lap who's occasionally yawning and snoring during this entire interview so she's very very cute but they can only see part of her head in my defense i cooked a bunch of food and dropped it off to our friends with family so well, there you go. You're you're a good friend, Dominic. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dominic, thank you. Um, this is this has been really a, a delight. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, for your candid answers uh, on our on our podcast today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This has been an episode of the Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com or visit threepillarglobal.com.